I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Join us on a quest to find awe and wonder in all nature, human or wild, vast or small, encounters that move us beyond words. Your host for this episode is Constant Wonder producer Eric Schultzka. When I was a kid, I moved around a lot. I lived in a lot of different countries. Even when we were in countries, we moved from house to house. I must have moved at least 10 or 15 times by the time I went to college. My sense of home and rootedness was very diffuse, and I had always felt very grounded by learning about the biome that surrounded me, the ecosystem that surrounded me, like watching the leafcutter ants at the bus stop or like growing tomatoes on the veranda or having these little glimpses of connection into the ecosystem in which I lived. That's Naira de Gracia. Naira is hard for Americans to say, so she goes by Nye. Nye is a Spanish-American field biologist who spent years studying seabirds in some of the world's wildest places. Today's episode is about Nye's longing for belonging. Belonging in place, in environment, with the flora and fauna. It's the story of a child raised without roots, looking for a place to sink and grow some. She felt those elusive roots taking hold one summer on a tiny island off the coast of Maine. My first summer in college, I got the chance to spend 10 days on this seabird nesting island that was a puffin breeding colony. It was this tiny, tiny island. Every person that worked on the island had their little tent platform, and then we had a main hut in the middle where we would cook food, and food was stored under the hut, and we collected rainwater, and you could walk across the island in five minutes. I didn't have a smartphone at the time or anything, so it was no contact with the world, which also made everything feel more vivid and even more magical. The place is called Eastern Rock Island. That's its real name. It's more of a rock than an island. Nye's job that summer was to study those impossibly cute puffins. But her most transformative bird experience involved a different seabird, one she never actually saw. I never actually saw the storm petrel that lived under my tent, but at night I would hear it purring in its burrow. It would land and then I didn't want to scare it, so I didn't open my zipper or anything, but it would scurry into its burrow and then it would make this little purring sound, like, like an engine that's trying to take off or something. Naira de Gracia's new book is The Last Cold Place, a field season studying penguins in Antarctica. We're going to be going there with her in a moment to spend a season not just with penguins, but also with skuas, fur seals, and leopard seals. But before we head for the Antipodes, I wanted to hear a little more about that storm petrel, that nightly companion during Nye's first research season on that island off the coast of Maine. It's a very small seabird, slightly smaller than a pigeon. There's a couple different species, but the ones that I've mostly worked with have been dark in color. Some of them have a little white band along their rumps. And they're very agile flyers, and they feed during the day at the ocean, and then they come in to land at night, and that's when they come into their burrows and feed their chicks. 
So that's when people usually see them is at dusk or right when the sun is starting to go down. They all fly in from the ocean and spend the night in their burrows and then they fly out again in the early morning to the ocean. Kind of a mystical relationship to be that intimate with a bird you never saw. Yeah, it was strange because we slept inches from each other. Like it was right under me, but I I never saw it and I don't think it ever saw me. I must have been aware that something was there. But yeah, we we just hung out every night in silence together. While Nye was on Eastern Rock Island, she had another transformative experience with yet another type of seabird. This was a newly hatched tern chick. Her job was to weigh the newborn chicks and to evaluate their health. We could track their growth and tell how well they were being fed by their parents, how abundant the food source was in the ocean. There were a bunch of these nests with little eggs, and we would go in there. And if an egg had just hatched, we would weigh the chick, this tiny, tiny chick that had just emerged from its egg. And these chicks are, like, smaller than the palm of your hand, slightly bigger than a quail egg. And they're all curled up, and they just seem so fragile. And I could feel its heartbeat. Its skin is so thin, and you can see some of its organs through its skin, and it's still slightly wet. It's just emerged from its fetal state. It was some kind of essence of life, stripped bare of everything. It was just this little soul that I was holding in my hand. I remembered that chick for years. That was a very magical experience for me, like starting out as a field worker. Your relationship with the wildlife often works on that kind of dual plane where you do your job with one hand and then what you're really experiencing is something else. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I think that's true for a lot of field workers. Field work is so much more than a job because it engulfs your whole life. It's your entire lifestyle. And people that sign up for that kind of work tend to also derive pretty profound personal satisfaction from the lifestyle and the closeness that you experience with other species and other forms of life. And that was definitely true for me. I really loved the way my life unfolded on islands. And I really loved living so close to other species and being the minority when it comes to the number of (laughs) entities in a given space. I really enjoyed that. Nye views any notion of wildness that places humans outside of nature as a distinctly Western construct. And it's a separation that saddens her. For her, the resulting schism between humans and nature cuts especially deep, given her lifelong need to find belonging. I grew up within a Western worldview, basically. I moved through international schools. My parents grew up within a Western worldview. And within that paradigm, there's this inherent separation between people and nature. Even the word nature, the way it's defined, is everything that isn't human. I think that in our culture is a pretty profound wound that I think might be a little more palpable for me because I don't have any other home. And I've always tried to find my way towards feeling like I belonged in the world through my connection to ecosystems or whatever space I was occupying, whatever other species were there. I think for any of us, sharing a sleeping space with a purring storm petrel or holding a newborn turn chick in your hand could be transformative. But I think it would be even more so for an uprooted child who had grown into an unrooted college student looking for a place in the world. Now, Nye was not done with storm petrels. 
After that close but unseen connection under her tent platform, she spent the following summer season studying seabirds on an island off the coast of Alaska. Here again, she had a huge experience with storm petrels. This time, it was a swarm of them, and she was out amongst them, with them, part of the landscape. My second season, I went out to an island called St. Lazaria that is in the southeast of Alaska. It's one of the most beautiful landscapes I've ever seen. It's open ocean. There's so many little islands on the coast, and all the islands are just covered in these evergreen trees, pine trees, spruce trees, just shooting straight out of the island a couple meters from the shore. Some of the islands have these big hills, big mountains, and there's orcas swimming around in the ocean and otters and seaweed. And there's just this very palpable like abundance, especially in the summer. So this is a summer in Alaska. So the sun actually goes down pretty late. We would go to bed long before the storm petrels would come in, but we'd always have to turn off all the lights that were outside and close all the windows. We knew the storm petrels were coming, but I never actually got to see them until a couple of weeks into the season. My crew lead was like, okay, we have to go out to see the storm petrels coming in. And we went, we hiked out at night to this south part of the island and we sat in this forest. The forest was really thick with burrows. You could just see the burrow entrances everywhere. And you could already see that the ground was stomped down by all these little storm petrel feet stomping around every night. And I remember it was really cold and I was just sitting there freezing. What the heck am I doing? What am I about to see? And I dozed off a little bit. And then when I woke up, it was like pitch black and there were just wings everywhere. And these storm petrels are quite dark colored, so it's hard to distinguish them from the darkness of night. You just see their movement and it's this collective movement of wings. And they were everywhere in the air, through the trees. They were also just walking all over the ground, going into burrows, coming out of burrows. And I remember us sitting on the ground. We were just like another rock. We were part of the landscape. We were just part of the topography on the ground that they had to navigate. So there were birds walking all over us. And when they come into the burrows, they make their little purring little engine sound. And they were also calling from the air. This huge movement that I was just immersed in. And I remember just feeling so swept up in it, the part of the ground, because to the storm petrels, we were not ourselves. We were just this medium that they had to cross. And I just felt like I could have been a tree to them and it wouldn't have made a difference. I really cherish the idea for some reason, I think. Let me see if I understand this, Nye. It was hanging out on those islands with that quiet connection to those birds and other creatures that was a healing and grounding experience for you, like you began to feel like you really belonged? Yeah, exactly. And I I think science was one avenue through which I found that connection because when you're observing a nest every single day for hours, your sense of the rhythms of that bird of that colony, your sense for the fluctuations of their lives and their survival is so attuned. I had this really intimate experience of an island. Over months, you watch the grass grow, you watch the chicks grow up, and it, it really grounded me in a sense of place. That summer in Alaska, Nye had become good friends with another field researcher named Matt. In the following season, which Nye spent on an island in the Pacific, Matt and Nye emailed back and forth as he described for her some marvelous scenes in Antarctica, where he was working with the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The stories that Matt told Nye 
and his recommendation on her behalf to his program led her to one of the coldest, moldiest, and poopiest research outposts on Earth. You are listening to Constant Wonder. I'm Eric Schultzka. I'm speaking here today with Naira de Gracia, a field biologist and the author of The Last Cold Place, a field season studying penguins in Antarctica. And so we come now to Nye's first days on a remote outpost of the world's most remote continent. When you arrive at camp, actually, you can't get in because it's snowed in. So the first thing you have to do is dig the snow out of the door openings. And all the doors are covered with these plywood sheets. So once you take off the plywood and you open the door, everything you see is covered in a plastic bag. There's no way we're going to live here. This is not a human home. But you unbag everything, you set up the table, you take the bag off your mattress, you chuck your sleeping bag up there, you have to dig out the propane connector, connect a propane stove, click it on, and that would start warming the space. And then the smell of mold kind of wafts through the air. The floor is plywood, so that sound of boots on plywood is very vivid in my mind from the season. There were like bits that I would constantly be tripping over because there were edges that weren't quite flush with each other. That was just because it was an old building. There were two huts on the base. The main hut housed and fed both the penguin team and the SEAL research team. But then there was the smaller shack called the Skua Shack, which was strictly the domain of the penguin team. It was about a mile north of main hut. So we had to walk out there every day, rain, sun or shine or gale, whatever. Early season, everything's covered in snow. So we would take snowshoes out there. The shack was up on a little rise right above all the penguin colonies. And the shack was obviously a lot smaller than main hut, but it's the same sort of warped plywood aesthetic. Everything is moist. Everything's kind of covered in in mold. Everything's bagged for the winter. We have a little camping stove on a counter and these two office chairs. And then this table where we we would enter our data and, and work on our notebooks and stuff. We had two set of hooks next to the bunks, and one of them was where our penguin clothes went, and one of them is where our camp clothes went, and they had to be separated. That was an absolute iron rule, is that everything that touched the penguin colonies had to be like quarantined and separated from anything that you brought into camp, because the toxicity of the penguin muck and the penguin colonies was completely intolerable to the SEAL crew, which is fair. It's pretty gross. So the substrate of penguin colonies... Under the rocks is this really sticky mud from a mixture of the soil mixed with many decades of penguin poop in the same exact spots. Just created this really sticky, kind of extremely pungent substrate that we would kind of flomp through every day. I feel like I really stopped noticing the smell, but it is quite intense when I first experienced it. Now let's meet the penguins. And as this is the beginning of the nesting season, we'll begin with nest making, and that means pebbles. Yeah, pebbles are the currency of penguin colonies, basically, at least early season. So when the snow melts off these little rocky rises where they set about building their nests and they try to find the perfect pebble for their nests. And the perfect pebble is maybe the size of a nut and they would dig it out of these muddy puddles because the ones that were on the surface had already been taken long ago. And they would 
sort of lean down and put their flippers behind them for balance and stick their face really close to the ground and kind of turn their head so their eye could be right above these puddles. And then they would stick their bill and grab a pebble and waddle over to their nest, really proud about it, present it to their mate. They would do this very ceremonial bow to place the pebble on the edge of the nest. And they would be very specific about where on the nest they would be placing this pebble. It would have to be exactly at that spot. And they would do this little croon to their mate. And then them and their mate would croon to each other, just validating the existence of this pebble and its union into their holy nest. And then the the mate would look at the pebble and inevitably pick up the pebble where it was placed and move it to a spot that they deemed was slightly better and rearrange the nest a little bit. These are people, because that's human (laughs) relationships in a nutshell, right? (laughs) I know. Yeah, it's really funny. I think the more time you spend with any species, the more you can identify with the gestures. And I guess you can go into the territory of anthropomorphizing. But yeah, there's just so much there that feels really universal. Her job centered on two types of penguins. First, there were the larger, more docile gentoos, and then there were the smaller, feistier chin straps. So chinstraps and gentoos, the way they fight with each other is by slapping each other. We were just very large penguins. So when they were displeased with our presence, they would also slap us. And chinstrap penguins are a little more belligerent and a little more quick to slap. Gentoos are a little mellower. But yeah, so we would bend them. We'd have to pick them up to bend them. And then we'd put them down and we usually get slapped. Anytime you walk through the colony, you get a few slaps. If you get too close to anybody, they would just, they would slap each other constantly. They would grab a bite full of feathers that was on the back of the penguin that they were fighting with to hold them in place. And they would just slap them with these really stinging, stinging whacks that were super, super loud across the colonies. One time Matt told me a story of a chinstrap that he saw that had accidentally collided into a rock and had been really displeased about it and just slapped the rock. Because <laughs> they just slap anything that they don't like. <laughs> that like displeases them. They just That's their universal solution. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell us how you banned the penguins. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, usually with seabirds, there's all kinds of trapping mechanisms. But with penguins, because they're just sitting on their nests, usually when you ban them, you can walk to them and pick them up right off their nests. We would usually ban them when both mates were at the nest so that the one that was incubating, we would pick them up to ban them and the other mate would see that and go on the eggs and that protected the eggs from being cold for too long. And then we'd just tuck them up under our legs and their heads would be facing forward in the same direction as our heads and their flippers would be splayed out against the front of your thighs and you would just band them in a few seconds and just plonk them down again and they were very disoriented by the experience and they all reacted a little differently but yeah it was pretty simple actually to band a penguin but then there was that one that really got mad at you and you got a lot of slaps after that one yes (laughs) Yes, there were some that were a little grumpier about the experience than others. Um, yeah, I do remember that one on the, the highest colony, on Ridge 29, and I put it down and it just like stood on my boot and slapped my calf over and over again, <laughs> which is fair. So you're in Alaska and you're going to be a rock. You want to belong. Now you're down there banding a penguin and it slaps mm-hmm. you and you already know enough about these guys to know that that's actually kind of a compliment. He's actually viewing you as part of the environment, right? (laughs) Yeah, I'm being treated equally as another penguin, basically. (laughs) And that's not a very kind treatment, but I took it gratefully. 
After the nesting and egg-laying and banding of penguins, and after much sitting on eggs and fending off marauding seabirds, who we will meet in a moment, after all of this work, it came time for hatching. And right about that time, Nye had one of those mystical experiences that seems to transcend place and time. So it was like the latest I'd ever been out in the colonies. I think I headed out at 8 p.m. or something. You hike out, that's another 30 minutes. And the sun, it doesn't quite go down entirely. It does at like four in the morning. But by that time, it does circle in the sky. It's a little closer to the horizon. And the light that came in was this very angled kind of warm light that was diffused by some of the fogginess and the cloudiness in the sky. And I just remember the quality of light feeling so different at that time of day. And because I had been to the colonies so much at a specific sort of window of time and shifting that, it's such a subtle little change. But when you do get used to all the little nuances of being in a space, it makes a really big difference. And it was right around Hatch. And I remember going up to these colonies to do my rounds and hearing the first little faint peeping of what I knew because I had heard every single sound in that colony for two months, at least by then. I knew that it was different and I knew that it was a chick because it was a little high-pitched and I could tell where it was coming from and I saw this little shell right at the base of the nest. And I just remember feeling this wave of, wow, life just continues really. And it's just such a privilege to witness the renewal of life of these really amazing remote species and, and literally being there when something is being birthed from its primordial shell, the first chick that that I heard or was aware of coming out into the world. Yeah, it was it was pretty cool. The idyllic mood didn't last. Life comes at you fast, and in the Antarctic, so does death. Penguin eggs and penguin chicks have a fierce enemy, a bird called the skua. You know about skuas within the first few days because they're very present in camp. There's a pair that nests right next to camp, so you see them right away. We learned pretty quickly that they predate on penguin eggs, penguin chicks. They also would scavenge around the seal harem, so placentas. They loved a good placenta, nice and fresh. <laughs> um, but yeah, we we worked with the skuas. We used to watch them quite a lot. And, you know, I went through like a whole journey with my relationship with skuas. They're such a necessary part of the ecosystem. And I couldn't really see that, obviously, at the beginning, because all I saw was them like stealing eggs from penguins that had lovingly incubated them for many, many weeks. And I felt that life had been snuffed out. And, you know, you watch these penguins every day. You do get emotionally attached. Can't really help it. We are human. And like humans, skuas must earn a living. And they do it as honorably as anyone in that tough environment. We also tracked the, the breeding success of skuas. So we also hiked all over the Cape to their breeding grounds and their nests that were a lot more spread out. There was one nest on one hill, basically, and we'd have to hike up the next hill to go to the next nest. And anytime a skua would fly over another skua's territory, they would open their wings and call at each other. The size of a skua is about a large seagull, and they're dark brown. They're mottled. Some are darker than others. Some are a little lighter brown. And when they sit, they're really round and fluffy, and they kind of have the shape of an American football. 
and they have this pointed beak that's really sharp at the bottom because they have to tear into carcasses, basically. They have these really black eyes that feel really sentient, and they kind of track you in a really vivid way that you can see what, exactly what they're looking at when you get really close. They kind of reflect you back at you, if that makes sense. And I think that what endeared me to them at first was their really strong pairs, bonded pairs. And they're all banded. So when we would recite a pair, we'd be able to see if it had been the same pair last year and the year before and the year before and the year before. And you could just get a sense of time. You know, these birds have been together 10 years and they've been in this spot for 10 years. And, you know, you go to their nesting spots and they're just huddled together. Their wet feathers are touching. They're just really huddled against the wind that really strong pair bond, I guess, impressed me. And then I remember also just watching them fly. It's so violently windy. Sometimes we even struggle to walk, but the skuas were always in the air, no matter what. The way they fly, you know, they can't really fight it. It's a very like Taoist way of existing in the air. They just have to flow with the energy that comes at them. And I remember feeling really impressed and fascinated watching them ride all these really strong gusts and being able to maneuver and get where they needed to get. This is Constant Wonder. I'm Eric Schultzka. Naira de Gracia is the author of The Last Cold Place, a field season studying penguins in Antarctica. We've been following Nai's search to connect to the landscape she's worked in. She's already shared some great moments from Maine to Alaska to Antarctica. She's on the southern continent to study penguins, but now we're going to follow her as she captures another of Antarctica's residents, fur seals. Now, you may be wondering why all of this capturing of seals and penguins, etc., is necessary. The answer is this little shrimpy critter called krill. Krill are the backbone of the diets of most of these creatures that live in the Antarctic. But krill have also become an important target for human fisheries. And those human fisheries are overwhelming the krill populations and thereby threatening the creatures in the Antarctic that depend on them. So what these researchers are doing is finding evidence to support worldwide agreements that will keep the krill population stable and sustain the other creatures on the islands. So with that caveat in place, it's time to capture and study some seals. Nye was, of course, part of the penguin team, but when it comes to seals, it's all hands on deck. Yeah, so capturing seals, unlike capturing penguins, is a whole complicated operation that requires everybody. So the lead seal researcher identifies the female that needs to be captured. And then we kind of formulate a game plan based on where she is in the harem, how many bulls are around. I should mention that Antarctic fur seals breed in this harem structure where there's a territorial bull that has control over a certain amount of beach. And all the females that arrive at that beach to breed are part of their harem. So we would arrive at the harem and see who the territorial bull was. There were always a bunch of a few other bulls hanging around hoping to snag a female if she strayed too far. And there would be one person that would snag the pup with this really long bamboo pole with a little noose. They would wrap it around the pup's body and then they would kind of pull it along the beach 
and the female would see their pup shooting away from them, and she would bound after the pup away from the territorial male. And then the penguin crew would be stationed nearby behind rocks, and we would leap up with these giant bamboo poles and just jab at the males to dissuade them from chasing after the female. Meanwhile, this other seal technician jumps up with this giant net, and they're running after the female, who's still running after the pup. Everyone's running at this point. <laughs> Flings the net over the female. And as she runs, she runs into the net and she gets kind of wrapped up in the net. And then someone else jumps up and helps to carry the female over to where we've set up the gas anesthesia machine. The penguin team's responsibility during that entire process is to make sure that bulls are not getting close to people or to the pup or to the female. So we're basically fending them off with these poles. And once we've moved the female off, and once we've grabbed the pup and moved them off, we back away. They collect a few samples, they glue a device onto the female's back that measures her trips, like her trip length and her depth of her dives. While that's happening, the penguin team is occupying the little puppy, and we also have to take a few samples and take a few measurements. We bleach a letter or a symbol on their back so that they can be identified. That all grows out once they get their real fur in. One of Nye's many transformative moments in the adventure involved this task that she and Matt, the penguin team, were given of puppy-sitting the newborn seal pups while their mothers were getting tagged and weighed. Nye had a close bond with a newborn pup she named Narwhal. Matt and I had to basically spend time with their little pups, and I was really excited to, to meet all the little puppies. But when you're in the moment, you're not really thinking about all your expectations because it is so pure. These little squirmy puppies that had just emerged to the world maybe seven hours before, and they don't know anything. They know the call of their mother. They have the instinct to suckle, but they don't know what the world is. They don't even know what their own flippers are. They were always slapping themselves with their flippers and kind of flopping around. And I just remember sitting on the beach with this tiny little seal and it was just flopping around on the beach and kind of trying to bite us, but they don't really have teeth. Well, they have really tiny teeth at the beginning. And then it just wore itself out and put its little head on my thigh and just passed out and was just sleeping there. And it was so warm and I took a little sniff and it kind of smelled a little musky and a little salty. I always find that the, the sense of wonder strikes me when you're working with really young animals that don't know to, f to fear you yet, don't know what the universe is yet, because obviously we all started there. And, you know, Narwhal was the first one that I met. And the fact that she just fell asleep on me made me feel like I had existed in this world for her to have a pillow. That was a comforting thought to me. And um, yeah, it was a really sweet moment. While the penguin team was puppy-sitting, the SEAL team was working on the mothers, getting data and placing tracking devices. And so the female, when she's being worked on, is basically unconscious through gas anesthesia. And then once they finish with her, they turn off the gas anesthesia, put her in this wooden box, and move the box close to the colonies. And then we put the puppy right outside the box. And the reason that she's in the box is to give her a safe, dark space for her to start to wake up. Once she kind of starts waking up, Mike, who's one of the researchers, is like really good at imitating female calls and he'll call to the puppy so that the puppy will respond. And once the puppy starts yelling, the female in the box will start waking up because she'll recognize her puppy's sound. And so that helps her wake up. And when she calls back at the puppy, she's awake enough to let her go. And we tip over the box 
And she comes bounding up, reunites with her puppy in the harem, and then we, we kind of run off into the distance. I understand that sometimes the mama seals were not amused at you. Yeah, so this fur seal female had begun chasing me in the colonies, and I, I poked her with my steeple, and I couldn't get her away. She lunged at my pants and made this hole in my pants, and, and I just got spooked. And I think my fight-or-flight impulses kicked in, and I was like, I need to get away from the seal. So I ran into the penguin colonies. I ran into the chinstrap colonies, because I knew that chinstraps are very fierce warriors, and they'll slap anything that gets in there. So I was hiding in the chinstrap colonies where the seal didn't want to come. Did it work? <laughs> it did work, yeah. Wow. But I definitely kept an eye out from that day on, yeah. There's a chapter partway through Nye's book that has the rocks and beaches bursting with new life. This is mostly penguin chicks and seal pups. It's an exuberant scene. You can almost hear the charming chaos all over the beaches. But then the leopard seals appear. Yeah, so there are predatory leopard seals also on the island, and they tend to consume a lot of fur seal puppies. There's a reason there's a lot of leopard seals out there, and it has to do with climate change, but I'm sure we'll get into it later. So there's a lot of fur seal pups that get eaten by leopard seals once they start venturing into the ocean. But there were a lot of puppies disappearing, and a lot of mothers were screaming into the night, howling into the night. We would hear these howls from Main Hut. We had a lot of seals in harems that were right below the beach of Main Hut. And there's a certain part of the season where these howls were like really common and they're really loud and they're so heartbreaking and, and like sorrowful and they just wrench your heart, these howls of loss. The leopard seals are usually ice-loving species. So they tend to prefer living on icebergs in the middle of the ocean and hunting seals and fish and krill. They have a really wide diet. But because of climate change, there have been a lot fewer icebergs. So they've become accustomed to hauling out on land instead. And what, what that means for the fur seal harems is that they're very close to the source of food that's very abundant, which is the fur seal puppies. Um, once they start swimming, they don't really, they're not very good swimmers, not compared to a leopard seal. We would also study the leopard seals because they were a really important part of the ecosystem and they were having a really big impact on the Antarctic fur seals out there. So we would do captures on the leopard seals. And the leopard seals have been coming to the island for many years. And Doug, one of the scientists we were down there with, did his PhD on leopard seals, so he knew all of them. They tend to fight over food, and so they have these really big scars that you can identify individuals. I think part of what endeared me to leopard seals is that the cape is ruled by these really old matriarchs, and I just kind of loved that idea. <laughs> it was like these old ladies that were just holding it down and just totally dominating any challenging their, their territory, basically. The way they mark leopard seals is by putting a tag into their tail flipper and you kind of have to sneak up on them when they're sleeping on land and just punch a hole through their tail. And they hate it, but you can run away fast enough to not have to deal with the consequences. And there's one leopard seal who simply would not allow herself to be tagged. Meet Melba. Melba had a sense for when anyone was approaching her or even formulated the idea in their head that they wanted to tag her and had avoided getting a tag for many, many years. And she was a bit legendary down at the Cape and she had this really distinctive scar. I really admired her aversion to being labeled by human tools. 
and her wiliness and independence. Yeah, and I, I came across her in the penguin colonies one time and she she just yawned and I was terrified. <laughs> they They have this enormous mouth. So we're going to freeze Melba there, mid-yawn. I just had to cut in to ask Nye to describe the leopard seal because they really are often described as something out of a nightmare. They're fearsome predators and they look the part every inch. They're the second biggest seal in the world behind southern elephant seals. So they're soft and fuzzy, but most of their insulation comes from fat. So they're also quite chunky animals. And they have this really long kind of snaking neck in the front. And their head is very reptilian. They have this really wide mouth and they have these slanted eyes. Their head really looks very kind of like a dragon or like kind of snakeish. They're really extremely muscular. They're also very dexterous in the water and able to make these really quick turns. But we mostly saw them on land, obviously. And they would just be napping. They would just haul out to, to sleep, basically. And that included yawning. I mentioned leopard seals have a really diverse diet. They eat krill, they eat fish, they hunt seals, they hunt penguins. So they have an extremely well-equipped toolbox when it comes to their teeth. They have a lot of different kinds of teeth in the back and in the front. And they also have this very wide bite. So they can open their mouth super wide. They just have an enormous mouth, basically. And when they yawn, this gaping maw just opens in front of you. It's this zipper into this different reality where it just it unfolds and it's rows and rows of this extremely sharp teeth and this really spotted tongue. And it's the biggest mouth you can imagine when it's wide, wide open. And then they close it and they'll go back to sleep. And you're just like, that was scary. <laughs> and all they did was yawn. It's so funny. <laughs> just chilling. <laughs> Did you actually help capture one and weigh it? Yeah, so we did a bunch of captures down there. That's another sort of process where you need the whole crew. So I was a primary medical officer, which means I was responsible for any medical situations that arose. And because of that, they decided that I would be the heartbeat monitor. So the way it went was Doug, one of our researchers, would shoot her with a dart gun with some sedatives. And once she was sedated enough that he could slap her on the butt, he would come up to her and stick this really big needle in her with more sedatives. And then the rest of us would come up and take samples, measure her. And I would be taking respiration measurements every couple minutes. And then we had to roll her into a tarp and weigh her, which was a whole process because they're freaking enormous. Uh, we had to have like five of us, a rolled up tarp, right, scooch it up right next to her. And we would all have to heave her halfway on her side so we could reach under her and pull the tarp from under her and then heave her onto the tarp. And then we had this enormous tripod with a winch. So the tarp had these two bars on the side that would come together and then we'd winch it up into the tripod where the scale would be. It was just a whole process and then we had to roll her out. And unlike the, the first seal females, they weren't unconscious. They were just sedated. So they were really kind of sleepy and groggy. So they were still vaguely aware of things. So sometimes they would whip their head around and snap at us or make growling noises. 1,100 pounds. I don't care how many people you have helping. Getting that creature with that mouth and those teeth onto a tarp to weigh her, that's next level stuff. Nye found transformative moments where she least expected them. One came right toward the end of her first season with the penguins. After all the exhausting work of the day, the penguin team would do a nightly ritual that they called beach sweep. Their job was to find stray birds that may be banded but not nesting. 
Already exhausted, the team had to walk all the beaches scanning for banded birds and recording any finds. It's a task that takes quite a lot of attention and presence because you have to find banded birds among this chaos of birds and also distinguish or, you know, write down the number and figure out if you've seen it before or not. It can be hard to be present, I guess, in, in your environment and in your ecosystem during that particular task. But I do remember that one time I was doing beach sweep. It was really foggy and, and things were just appearing and disappearing into the fog in a very kind of mystical way. This penguin just walked right up to me. It turned just enough for me to see its band in it. And we just looked at each other for a few moments and then it just waddled away the way that penguins do. And I got to look up its band and it had been a chick at the colonies 13 years before. It was just really cool to think about the continuity of these spaces and the fact that 13 years before I was a child, I didn't know anything about those colonies. I didn't know that they even existed or that I would be there someday or that I would even study biology. I didn't really know anything about myself when I was 13. But the penguin had come back to the colonies every single year since then. And I, I think I really cherished the idea of us living parallel lives or me having access to that penguin's history that I can match up with my own. The next season, Nye was back at the camp. Much had changed. There were new rules to protect the birds, and there were new technologies that made the whole project more interesting. Doug, who's a leopard seal researcher, told us about the first time that he had attached cameras to the leopard seals. You know, when you get a, a camera back from an animal, it's such a cool access to their world. And just the idea that nobody's ever seen the footage you're about to see before is such a thrilling concept. And he told us a story about when he was down at the Cape studying leopard seals and he got this camera back from one of the animals and he was so excited to, to watch it. He spent all night basically stayed up watching the footage and there was this one moment where he was just watching the leopard seal kind of swim around in the ocean and it could have really been anywhere at the cape you know it was rocky there was algae there were some fish flitting about and the leopard seal lifts his head above the surface of the water and he can see camp in the distance he can see like us and he was like hmm, maybe that's enough for tonight maybe i'll close my laptop now I love that story because in any moment, humans out in the field, you do become part of the landscape that other animals just perceive as part of their world. And it's similar to just being a log or a rock when the storm petrels are coming in at night. But to them, your existence isn't complicated and you're just there, part of the landscape, and they perceive you as such. And yeah, the camera work really is, is such a palpable example of that. I'm still trying to wrap my head around what it must have been like watching the leopard seal's perspective from a camera on her back. Fish, water, penguins swimming by, and then the seal surfaces and you suddenly realize that you are part of her world and there you are on your own camera. In this second season with the penguins, Nye would now be able to travel with them herself, just like Doug had done with his leopard seals. Now she would be able to do that with her penguins and see the world from their point of view. The entire time that you're working with penguins, basically they're on land because that's where you can access them. You you see them shooting off into the ocean every day and you see them arriving from the ocean. But obviously you don't know what that entire part of their world is like. And that's the majority of their world. So you do have this very small, narrow glimpse into their lives. And when we did get cameras, camera technology had just advanced enough that there were cameras small enough that we could attach to penguins. And I remember... 
attaching the camera and we were only going to leave it on for 24 hours. And we arrived the next morning and she was at the nest and we, we'd be like falling over each other to get her back because we were so excited. And we took the camera to main hut and the anticipation of plugging it in. And the second we plug it in, the first thing we see is the ocean and her swimming. And from the camera view, you can see her weaving through the water and other penguins are around. You not only could see her perspective, but you could see what it would look for her to swim because you were seeing other penguins swimming alongside her. And we also got to see it weaving through these swarms of krill. We even saw a banded penguin shoot by its field of vision. And then she would come up to the surface of the water to breathe. And you would see the surface of the ocean and this cloudy sky. It really just felt like I was shrunk down and was just sitting on this penguin and following it along. And it was just such a cool experience to finally have this little piece of what the rest of the penguin's reality is that we never got to access and we never got to see or experience. It was a great poignant end to my time down there. Wind was a constant for Nye and her fellow researchers in Antarctica. It was loud and powerful. And then sometimes it would disappear altogether. And the effect of that disappearance would be magical and rather disconcerting. The Antarctic Peninsula is a super windy place because it basically sticks up right in the middle of this really strong current that whips around the globe. We would always check the weather display in the morning because the wind really affected our work. We had to do everything in the wind, but it basically affected the tangible reality of our experience out in the colonies or out on the beaches. You get a sense for how easy it's going to be to walk, or like certain miles per hour, like 30 miles an hour was super chill. Once it got to 50, things got a little more challenging. <laughs> there might be some crawling involved if you have to go up hills. Another element of it was that you know, you'd have this base wind, but then you'd also get these really intense gusts. Your baseline for sound was just this white noise of rushing wind through the hills and into your ears. It was always, almost always. So I remember when there was no wind, suddenly it was this silence that was so eerie and strange because of how omnipresent the sound had been in the entire rest of the time that the silence really felt present in a way that you could cut it with a knife or it was thick around you. And usually when there was no wind, there was a lot of fog that would descend because it wasn't being blown away. You'd just be walking in this entirely white world that was lit by the sun, but you couldn't really know where the sun was because it was diffused by all the fog. Such a strange liminal space. It's like images that people create when they imagine your ascension to heaven or after you die, some kind of liminal space between, you know, life and death where nothing's defined and you're just walking through just light. Yeah, it was, it was very strange. It could be very disorienting. Have you ever seen The Good Place? I have, yeah. So you know when the entire creation gets kind of wiped away and they're in that space, it's all white? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty much like that. <laughs> <laughs> My sense is that you had more than a few of those magical moments in that windless, foggy kind of light. Yeah, definitely. So usually when the sun was out or when it was cloudy but slightly warm, it was nice to go on little detours on my way back to Main Hut. And on this one evening, I decided to climb this little rocky spire that was nearby Main Camp, like right in front of it. And I'd never been up there before. And so I'd finished all my rounds. I was about to head back. I dropped my pack. 
I walked up the, this rocky slope and I got to the top and I just sat down and we would always watch for whales on the ocean because they're quite common. They would come down south to feed on the krill in the summer, especially humpbacks. And it was like really cloudy and it was it's a really foggy place when the wind isn't blowing. So the fog was quite low at the time and it had just enclosed my field of vision to maybe 200 meters out into the ocean and to the hills. And it it felt very close. And like we were all just huddling under this mantle of the cloud. And there was an iceberg out in the water. There were some chin straps on it, a couple of Adelis on it. And I had already felt such a familiarity with their forms and their movements that I saw them and I recognized the species and everything. And I knew what they were up to on the iceberg. And there was a whale nearby and there were some gulls circling overhead. I just remember feeling enclosed or embraced by the universe vis-a-vis this cloud and the ocean and this rock that I was sitting on and that feeling of intimacy that I've been chasing forever. Naira de Gracia is a field biologist, and she's the author of The Last Cold Place, a field season studying penguins in Antarctica. It's her first book, and I hope and expect that it will only be the first of several. This is Constant Wonder. If you liked what you heard today, check out our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you listen. Give us a five-star rating while you're at it. I'm Eric Scholzka. Today's episode was produced by me with help from Tenery Taylor and Audrey Hughes. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.